MSW Media. Before we get to this week's episode, please look in the description of this episode for a link to our very first listener survey. We really want your feedback so we can make the podcast better. Plus, if you fill out the survey, you can win an Amazon gift card. Now, let's get to the episode. This week, sealed materials from the Southern District of New York campaign finance investigation were revealed. They showed there was significant coordination between Donald Trump, Hope Hicks, Michael Cohen, and the president of the parent company of the National Enquirer. And the context appeared to be about hush money payments to two women. This raised serious questions about whether federal prosecutors were subject to political pressure or interference, especially given that the Justice Department would not discuss the influence of Attorney General Barr on the investigation. What can we do to ensure that prosecutors aren't subject to improper political influence? How can we find out whether the White House is trying to put pressure on career prosecutors? Should we enact legislation to force disclosure of these contacts? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name is Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a CNN legal analyst. And I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, the host of The Patty Vasquez Show, who joins us regularly on this podcast. Well, Patty, I have gotten so many questions uh, this week about what, you know, what do I think we can do about what I think people are, are concerned that there's been interference in the Southern District of New York investigation. I can't blame them because Attorney General Barr has been dishonest. He's been misleading. Uh, he looks like he's in the bag for, for Donald Trump. And it is curious that the Trump Organization uh, investigation that was ongoing in the Southern District really winded down right when Barr uh, took over. Is there a way to know what influence he had over that? Or is that just something that maybe someday we'll know? We'll I, find out? I mean, I think the latter is true. I think maybe someday we'll know. There, you know, typically when there is interference, um, you would think that there may be leaks. But, you know, the, there's a reason why decisions not to pursue investigations typically are kept under wraps because people have constitutional rights. And here it's not just Trump, it's all these other associated people. So Hope Hicks uh, has constitutional rights. If she's going to be accused by the government of anything, it, it's supposed to be done in a formal process where she can challenge it in court. And so speculation and rumors and leaks about whether or not, you know, why she wasn't charged for, to use her as an example, it's not appropriate. It's not how the justice system is supposed to operate. But on the other hand, the way the justice system is supposed to operate is where everyone has confidence in the decisions that are made and that they're made without political influence. Yeah, it's a, it's sort of one of those things, again, we've talked about this many times where, you know, it seems as though we're getting closer to maybe some form 
of justice or at least a step in the right direction. And that there's always a slide backwards when the, whether it's the investigation being shut down or there isn't someone being charged with something. Yeah, I I think that the there's there's a segment of the public that it just has good reason to believe that um, that this invest, investigation has been interfered with. And I think, you know, one thing that we saw was, look, when Sessions was attorney general, he's obviously somebody I disagree with him on a lot of issues with good reason, um, particularly his treatment of LGBTQ Americans and his views on immigration and other things. But um, when he was there, the, there was this uh, bristling by Trump of how to deal with the Justice Department. It played out in public. We, were, we saw how it played out in private in the Mueller report. And Trump to this day says that Jeff Sessions, appointing Jeff Sessions was, as attorney general was his greatest mistake. Now, since we had Whitaker and now Barr as attorney general, it, it appears that Trump kind of has his guy as attorney general. And so there's in many ways, there's less transparency into what could be substantial interference because as we, I think what I see is with Barr, somebody's really masterful at deflecting and not providing straight answers to some of these questions. A lot of folks want to know, well, is there a statute of limitations on some of the elements that the SDNY was investigating? And as well, is it possible that they stopped their investigation because, you know, the idea that he's president, we don't want to charge a sitting president? Yeah, those are two great questions. So let's start with the first one. Statute of limitations is going to run in late 2021. There's a five-year statute of limitations. The hush money payments were in 2016. So statute of limitations there is late 2021. Uh, I will just note obstruction of justice. That statute uh, for all those activities in 2017 or 2018 is going to be running also during a potential Trump second term. So I wrote a piece in Politico, I don't know, a few months ago now, two or three months ago, saying about how Trump, you know, this election matters so much to Trump because he literally could save himself from indictment um, if he um, gets reelected. And, uh, you know, folks on the right, I think we're critical of that. But I think that that specter looms because there, I think there's no question he obstructed justice or no serious question that there's substantial evidence of that based on the Mueller report. Campaign finance is a trickier bit, uh, trickier uh, thing, but he at least appears to be implicated in some way in that activity. Well, I also think that, you, you know, people get frustrated. I don't know if there was another part you wanted to say, but uh, go ahead. Oh, I, I was just going to, um, I was just going to mention um, that people wanted to know whether the, um, the policy against indicting a sitting president played a role because you asked me that, you know, as to, Obviously, we know as to what Mueller did, it did play a role. He talked about it explicitly in the report. And there was reporting by USA Today that the policy did play a role in the Southern District's decision not to indict him. I think that's very important. Uh, and it raises really the question of what would, would happen once he leaves office. Um, I, I will say that it's a little more complicated as other people. One question I know we had from a number of listeners, I'll save you the effort of <laughs> listing it, is a lot of people were like, well, what about Hope Hicks? What about these other people? Why weren't they indicted? I tried to explain this in a Twitter thread earlier this week, but essentially um, the evidence, you, what you need uh, to show is that for campaign finance law, there's an unusual provision where you had to know that you're doing something illegal. Certain very complicated technical uh, sections of criminal law, like tax law most, com most commonly, but also campaign finance have that requirement. 
really to to prove that as to anybody, I think the the Southern District would really need the testimony of Michael Cohen, who, of course, was cooperative. Uh, Robert Mueller's team thought he was cooperative. The Southern District did not. They thought he was holding back. They thought he was withholding some key information about criminal activity from them. We don't know what it was. We don't really know why he didn't get credit from them. But the Southern District made a very big point publicly of saying that they did not think he should get cooperation credit from the judge. So I don't think they were comfortable using him as a witness against anyone else. I think that ultimately doomed uh, the prosecution of others. Now, one of the other questions that, of course, people uh, are, are thinking about is whether or not, uh, you know, there is a, a, you know, a way for us to have any impact. I mean, what can we do? People feel really helpless when it comes to watching this all unfold because it, it, it's, it's, it's building, right, over years. And there are some people who are, are having a little bit of burnout, trying to figure out where to focus their energies. And I think they're all trying to find a way to, to participate and have some impact. I think one thing that's been hard for people is there's been built up in them, there's these hopes that there's there's some magical person out there that's going to do it. So either for, in the beginning it was Mueller, like Mueller is going to sort of clean house. Uh, then it was the Southern District, I think, for many people. Um, some people have felt the judiciary might do that, the, the judges, the Supreme Court, although it seems like there's been a lack of, uh, a lack of trust there now, I think, with some folks after some recent decisions like their decision on gerrymandering. But I, I think that the truth of the matter is that the, problem, the problems that we're facing, the, you know, um, uh, particularly a potential corruption, are so deep that it's going to take a lot of effort and a movement by ordinary citizens to do it. I really think the election of 2020 um, maybe along with the last election, you know, the mo one of the most, if not the most significant of our lifetimes. I think that there's going to have to be a bottom up on the state level and on the United States Congress and Senate level change. Um, and I really think that unless Trump is rejected publicly in the election, I think it will not be until that time that you'll stop seeing Republicans being coward of him by him. And, and you're seeing it. You see what happened to Justin Amash, who stood up in a small way just by writing Twitter threads, essentially mm -hmm. saying his opposition. He's been effectively forced out of his party. He's mm -hmm. facing a primary challenge. He recently was listed as one of the most vulnerable seats in Congress for this upcoming election. That is why you don't see other Republicans going against him. And I think until we change um, our state houses and our Congress and our courts, um, we are not going to be able to solve these problems, which weren't created in a day um, and are not sure. going to be solved in a day. That's that's my my frank uh, position. On wow. It. I mean, and so if he does win the reelection next year, it'll only more deeply entrench the power that I think a lot of these Republicans have had over how we not only, you know, exercise democracy, which, I mean, it, it seems as though we're weakening it in this way, but also it'll it'll further the way we demonize each other. We aren't even able to have conversations with people on the other side of the aisle. I imagine how, how much worse it's going to get. Yeah, I am not looking forward to that. I Many of my family members voted for Trump, and it's very hard for me to have conversations with them because we really are dealing with different sets of facts based on where they get their news from.
um, or get their information from. And, you know, often they're getting it from sources of information that provide, I would say, disinformation or misinformation to them. And so it's very difficult uh, for me to have conversations with them. Um, I think that um, what I am concerned about is, you know, for instance, there's been a real weakening of ethical, um, the, the, uh, the, the way that we approach ethics in, in the White House. And, um, the, you know, just we, we've talked about disclosure forms, about having a, no conflicts of interest. Can you imagine going eight years without any of those respected? Can you imagine going for eight years without having the news media and, uh, you know, our newspapers and so on under attack by the president and potential violence against them? Eight years where there's interference by, by, the, by the political branches in the Justice Department. You know, it, it can, the, the more years that we proceed along this path, the harder it'll be to reverse. And that's, and really, I think that is a good lead in to our guest uh, for this week. We have a really special guest this week, uh, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse. He is a Democrat from Rhode Island. He sits on the Judiciary Committee. And he is somebody who has spent much of his career focused on these issues. He, he had been a federal prosecutor himself. He was appointed by President Clinton to be United States attorney in Rhode Island. He was, an, he was uh, you know, all, all before that, obviously, also an attorney in Rhode Island. And he is focused on the issue, particularly of Justice Department independence and keeping it independent from political influence. He's also uh, somebody who cares a lot about the independence and integrity of the judiciary. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Senator. Thank you for joining us. Great to be with you. Well, I will tell you, uh, this is a, it's a great week to be talking to you because so many of our listeners are concerned right now about potential interference from the White House in the operations of the Justice Department. Uh, just this week, there's uh, been a lot of uh, concern about perhaps there was some interference in the Southern District of New York investigation. But I know for you, this is an issue that you've been working on for a long time, since the Bush administration. And I'm curious... Uh, what was it in the Bush administration that made you uh, become concerned about the issue of DOJ independence? Well, I'd been a U.S. attorney, and while that was more operating at the field level, I had a pretty good sense that there are conversations that should not take place between the political White House and the, in theory, uh, non-political Department of Justice when it comes to um, particularly criminal prosecution, but also certain regulatory enforcement uh, actions. And we began to get word that there's actually a lot of traffic going back and forth between the White House and the Bush administration. So we dug out the uh, history, which goes back to what was called the Hatch letter uh, for Senator Orrin Hatch between Attorney General Reno and him, uh, saying that they're going to really narrowly circumscribe who in the White House could talk to who in the Department of Justice about such matters with people who are really politically accountable and would presumably stay away from the worst kinds of bad behavior. And uh, as it turned out, it was three on one side and two on the other. But when Attorney General Gonzalez was uh, Attorney General, it was dozens on both sides who were able to talk to each other, including Carl Rove by virtue of his position. Wow. So that kind of put everybody through the roof here, the idea that Carl Rove could be talking directly to prosecutors um, about cases was 
kind of blew the top off of, I think, uh, pretty much everyone. So they went back and they fixed it. And under the Obama administration, they kind of hammered down the corners to make sure it was uh, properly enforced. And everything went quite well. And Sessions promised to honor the uh, same policy. And then when he left, uh, it turned out that Whitaker had been like constantly violating uh, the policy, and nobody even bothered to call him on it. So that's why we have put in the statute to clear it up, and that's why we're going to be pursuing this as a as a question. They just seem to they can't help themselves, I guess. When you've got a Republican White House, they just want to meddle, meddle, meddle with uh, DOJ. Wow. Uh, well, uh, you raise a lot of questions, and I want to get to the legislation that you've been working on in in a moment. Um, I will say, just to give some background to our listeners, it's a wonderful thing to have another former federal prosecutor uh, on the podcast. Uh, usually, I'm the one giving this context, but uh, it, I think it's safe to say, I suspect you'd agree, that it's, it's, it's usually uh, unheard of or something that's totally uh, beyond the pale to have political pressure being put on prosecutors um, to either go forward or not with the prosecution. And really, it um, yeah, can have an influence on how the public perceives of the administration of justice. Yeah. It's kind of uh, principle one of the Department of Justice for criminal matters that you make absolutely sure that you're led by the facts and the law and to a significant extent also the interests, concerns, and well-being of criminal victims. But that's it. Somebody's political desire to get at an enemy of theirs or somebody's political desire to protect a friend of theirs uh, should be kept away from like kryptonite. Yeah, I have to say um, one thing that has happened during the Trump presidency is many norms that we've had, and I and I would regard this limitation on interference uh, in the Justice Department to be a norm, uh, have really seriously been tested, and we've begun to see the limitations on the the standard practices that we've had um, in our government, and. One of those is, I'd say, is clearly interference in uh, the Justice Department. And of course, that has been brought to the fore most prominently in the Mueller report, because obviously Trump uh, went to great lengths to interfere in in an ongoing investigation as outlined by Robert Mueller. Including a ton of stuff that he kind of got away with by doing it in plain view. Exactly right. I mean, if if he had privately gone to grand jurors and said, oh, by the way, if you're going to hear from uh, Michael Cohen, he's a witness that you shouldn't believe, or by the way, these prosecutors who are telling you this stuff, they're all part of a conspiracy to get me, there'd be no doubt in anybody's mind that that was obstruction of justice and that it was chargeable. Mm -hmm. But instead, he does that in plain view, over Twitter, on the front page of the newspapers, and as a result, gets away with it. Yeah, I um I think that's absolutely right and you know the, some of the public statements he made that were directed towards the, the own, his own justice department I felt were the same way. I mean, one yeah. one tweet that that really stuck out stuck out to me. I wrote an op-ed in the New York Times about it, but it was didn't even last past one day's worth of a news cycle was when he um, attacked Jeff Sessions for not quashing the indictments of two Republican members of Congress. Uh, and if he had done that privately, people would have been shocked. But he said that publicly yeah. and, and no one seemed to bat an eye. Yeah, it's almost as if um, 
when you do it publicly, you get a you get a pass on it, and that's not really the way obstruction is supposed to work. I guess it tends to you know speak to consciousness of guilt if you're doing it publicly, um, or you know in his case just not caring. Senator, this is Patty Vasquez. I'm co-hosting with Renato. And uh, one of the listeners says they're terrified that we no longer have three co-equal branches of government. How would you frame the damage to our democracy and how do we restore faith in our government? Well, I think uh, we've been through a bad period with the first branch of government, the legislative branch, when, um, to use one legal example, You've got the executive branch of government running in and making all these phony baloney assertions of executive privilege, or as they called it at one stage, constitutional privilege. And even though that's a really important boundary between the executive and the legislative branches, the legislative branches would never push back on it because the Republican committee chairman were too cowed by Trump to challenge these assertions, which were wrong legally and weren't even delivered correctly procedurally, but it takes a chairman to challenge it and they wouldn't challenge it. So that was a bad day at BlackRock between the executive and um, legislative branches. And what you're seeing now is uh, an increasing erosion of the independence of the judicial branch. Mm -hmm. And mark my words, someday this dark money you know, anonymous big funders infiltration of the judicial selection process of the campaigning for nominees once they're selected of the litigation groups that present issues to the court for them to appropriately answer politically and even the uh, amicus uh, brief filers you can go right across that array of uh, courtiers who surround the court, and uh, they're all funded by very big donors who don't identify themselves. And my guess is that there's a lot of overlap among who those big donors are. And then when you go and you look at the decisions the court's been rendering, particularly the partisan five to four decisions, you see that same group as the big, 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 big winners. And I think that is a huge scandal that the court needs to really pay attention to either clean up its act or um, change its procedures, but they can't keep going the way they're going. There's too much dark money and too many partisan decisions and too many predictable winners for this to turn out well for the court. Yeah, I have to say, uh, I, 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 when I was thinking about uh, topics to have to discuss with you, I know you've done a lot of work on um, sort of the the transformation of our judicial system, and that's itself, I think, an amazing topic. I, you know, on, on this one, th- there's so much even to ask just on J- DOJ independence because one thing that was a core of Donald Trump's campaign, of course, was the suggestion that his own opponent be investigated and imprisoned. Yeah. Without any intervening adjudication, just lock her up. <laughs> right. No due process. And yeah, none of that. None of that. And then, of course, you know, you're a member of the Judiciary Committee. And when uh, the Attorney General Barr was in front of that committee, I, I think many of us remember the questioning 
uh, between uh, your colleague, who I know is a co-sponsor on your uh, your bill, uh, uh, Senator uh, Kamala Harris, who was asking him some questions about whether or not there were suggestions about him initiating investigations of anyone, and he was really trying to evade answering he, that question. He was dodgy, yeah, in a, in, a, in a matter where he should not have been dodgy at all. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and it doesn't help when he publicly looks like he's brown-nosing the president. I mean, part of being attorney general is actually being independent of the president, but part of it is also communicating to the world by your action and by your attitude that you are independent of the president. And when he does all these various things that he has done that look like kowtowing and brown-nosing to the president, you know, it's hard to then trust that when it comes to game day, he's suddenly going to find his spine and do the right thing. Exactly right. I, I get asked all the time whether Barr should recuse from this investigation or that one. And really, there's an appearance uh, issue related to Barr in any investigation because of what you suggest and also the fact that he's misled the public uh, for to Trump's benefit on, on numerous occasions. And so yeah. it really there's a question around many investigations. And, you know, lately he had obviously um, – you know, there was a, he, you know, he reportedly was involved in the decision uh, regarding uh, the the man who uh, killed Mr. Gardner in, in New York City, uh, the I Can't Breathe uh, case. Uh, you know, he is, the, the Department of Justice has been very mum about what involvement, if any, he's had in the Southern District of New York campaign finance investigation. But they're, they're, they're reportedly the work of the Justice Department or the Southern District in investigating um, the Trump organization winded down around the time he was appointed. So there's all these theories that the public has, and it's, I think it has hurt confidence in the Justice Department. Yeah, no doubt. So I, I asked you, you know, I did allude a moment ago that uh, Senator Harris is a co-sponsor on a piece of legislation that you have, and it, you propose a piece of legislation in which the White House and the Justice Department are going to log communications between the White House and DOJ. You talked a little bit about that, how that a communications spiked during the Bush administration, spiked again not with Whitaker and Barr uh, in charge of the Justice Department, and that essentially this legislation would require that the logs would then be disclosed to Congress and to two different offices within the Justice Department. Can you explain why you think that that would you know, be a helpful piece of legislation and, and move the ball forward on DOJ independence? Well, it puts a um, cop onto the beat to keep track of when these conversations take place and knowing that they're going to be reported, I think will improve adherence. You know, they say you don't get what you expect, you get what you inspect. And so when we inspect for violations of the rule, uh, I think we'll find better compliance uh, with the rule and I hope it it's becomes a you know hygiene measure that prevents the kind of mischief that we've seen of um, the political elements of the White House uh, getting their you know or in with decisions that they should have no part in over at the Department of Justice. Yeah, I mean, to me, this seems a lot about transparency, which is a really an ethics yeah. issue that we should all. I mean, as citizens, we should all want our government, I think, to be more transparent. Yeah. And the baseline rule is nothing new. The baseline rule is something the mm -hmm. Republicans originally demanded of 
uh, Attorney General Reno back in the Clinton administration. Mm -hmm. It's been followed all through that. It was followed through most of the uh, Bush administration, other than the blow up with Attorney General Gonzalez. Uh, When Mukasey came in, he put the rule back and, you know, said that he would enforce it. We have every reason to believe that he did. Sessions said that he would. The underlying substance of this is really not controversial. It's absolutely bipartisan, and everybody seems to agree with it. So I'm hoping that simply tracking when violations take place so that you can find out that, in fact, this longstanding, bipartisan, uh, well-supported policy uh, is being violated isn't too complicated and isn't too controversial. Yeah, I have to say, uh, one thing I'm curious about is what arguments do Republicans give against legislation like this? None yet. I think in, in off, often it's just a matter of, you know, you can't get a hearing on the bill. So they don't want to argue the merits. They just don't want to host, hold a hearing. You know, it's interesting. I Many years ago, I briefly worked for uh, Senator um, Wellstone and, you know, at the time, uh, Paul Wellstone, and he had talked about the importance of the ability for senators to be able to amend bills on the floor and how that would give so much power to senators. But that's ended, right? I mean, the, the, the leaders, the majority leader seems to have put a quash on that in the meantime. Yeah, there has been uh, virtual extinction of um, amendments and um, really fairly complete extension of any meaningful amendments. So, you know, we're going to get a couple of Rand Paul and Mike Lee amendments. Um, That is the price they require Mitch McConnell to pay for being able to go to a piece of legislation. Hmm. Um, They're not going to pass. They're going to you know, his last one, I think, was the vote was 96 to 4. Um, but, you know, Senator Paul likes the attention and um, likes being able to speak on topics uh, that interest him on the Senate floor. And um, because he's a Republican and um, McConnell needs his vote, he lets him have these show amendments that get blown to pieces. But other than that, real amendments are very, very scarce these days. And what's sad is that there are actually a lot of senators who've even been here a couple of years who've never seen a bill move in regular order with real amendments and real process. Wow. So the, mem- the muscle memory of how you legislate is being lost in the Senate. That's that's amazing. It's really the loss is still a deliberate deliberation and a deliberative body, which is what a, the Senate is supposed to be. And also the ability of an independent of an independent senator to make their case to their colleagues, as opposed to having everything filtered through the leaders on both sides. So it's you know leadership and leadership make private agreements and fight with each other privately, and everybody else has to follow along. That's not healthy. Yeah, it's interesting. It's it's something that I think our listeners are going to care a lot about. They've been hearing that on the House side. I know Justin Amash and others have been making that point. I I do want to, I know, because I know your time is limited. I wanted to go to a listener question and then then I have one other wrap-up question uh, to ask. Yes, Senator. A lot of people are concerned about whether there has been political interference in the Southern District of New York investigation. Can Congress call officials of SDNY to testify to a committee and be required to explain their decision, who influenced it, and whether Trump at all can be or will be charged after 2020, or perhaps will they hand over their evidence for moving to impeach Trump? That is a difficult 
question um, because for the very reason that you don't want political interference in prosecution decisions, one way you can politically interfere in prosecution decisions is to go charging and looking for political interference and making false charges of political interference to try to steer things the other direction. And Congress is just as capable of mischief in this area as uh, the White House is. So it's just a very delicate space. And it's another reason why you really don't want the White House messing in this stuff because once you let Congress in, you've almost made a bad situation worse. So uh, in the first instance, the Department of Justice relies on the integrity of its prosecutors and on the ability to um, have the Office of Professional Responsibility and the Inspector General review these things and of the discovery process as cases go forward to produce records that the, that the department has and, and potentially smoke out whether there has been improper interference. Of course, if the improper interference has been to go easy and as a result there is no case and therefore no defense scratching at the uh, prosecution's case, that makes it a little bit more complicated. But what you really, really, really want is a White House that knows it has to stay the hell out of federal prosecutions and an attorney general who is not trying to load up political wins uh, with the White House in the way he goes about um, approving or authorizing um, prosecutions. Because once you have crossed that Rubicon and you're into the difficult territory of political interference, it's, it becomes very hard to unsnarl. Yeah, I've, I've I've long believed that the most potentially the most impactful president uh, in our lifetimes may be the president that comes after Trump, because I think that uh, how we get things back on the rails uh, is going to be a, a difficult challenge. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of cleaning up to do. Ask Eric Holder what he had to clean up after uh, the Bushies and Gonzalez and all. I can only imagine. Well, I, I one question I had for you before we go, a lot of our listeners are very concerned about these issues and are trying to figure out what can they do to make a difference? And, and it, what would you tell uh, a person who's listening who wants to, you know, move this issue forward, is concerned about DOJ independence? What, what should they do? Well, I think um, the most of your listeners, I expect, are probably – you know, pretty well versed uh, in these issues. And they tend to get very little public attention. So really simple things like writing a letter to the editor of your local paper, writing a letter or an article to the local uh, state or county bar journal, um, seeing what your local near nearby law school is doing on this subject and um, trying to make your voice heard and your concerns heard, I think, makes a difference. I really do believe that um, if people who are up to no good think that nobody will care, they will do more evil than if they are careful and looking over their shoulders because they know people will care and that people are watching. It's hard to police this within DOJ because there are good reasons why 
Congress and others should not be looking into criminal prosecutions at DOJ because we're potentially just as as, uh, interfering as the White House. So it's difficult. I do think that there's one really big thing happening out there that the public is missing, and that's this business we talked about early on of this pattern under Chief Justice Roberts of partisan decisions where it's five to four, where it's the five Republican activists, um, and they go off and they do stuff that violates precedent. Uh, Many cases, they're making up facts that are provably not factual, uh, and they come out with these decisions that are extremely helpful for big Republican donor interests. And by our count, which has been vetted through the American Constitutional Society and has been published for anybody to review and critique, um, there's 73 of those decisions through the end of the uh, October 18 term. 73 is a lot of cases to have such a distinct pattern of partisanship, um, of political uh, substantive content, and of a win for the Republican side. And that is a pattern that I think is telling. And the more people look at that, talk about that, you know, we get kind of jazzed by the really big cases, what Shelby County meant for enforcement of the Voting Rights Act, what Citizens United meant for loading up dark money special interest uh, influence, um, Heller, what it meant for the big gun companies. Um, but the pattern is actually more damning than even those worst individual cases. And I think we need to pay more attention focusing on that pattern to try to make sure that the court is also aware that we're looking and that it can't get away with murder and have nobody care. Well, there's been a a transformation of the courts in the Trump administration that is, uh, in my mind, unprecedented just in terms of its speed uh, due to the change in certain rules like uh, ignoring blue slips and so forth. Yeah. Um, And – that it, what, one thing that shocks me, I will say, as a lawyer who follows these issues, is how little um, people pay attention to it. I noticed that it didn't come up during the first presidential de- Democratic presidential debate, for example, at all. Um, but it's an yep. issue that impacts the lives of lots of ordinary people across this country. Yeah. And there are decisions that are in that pattern that come out, and we don't remark on them. We don't call them out. It goes just quietly as if it were just an ordinary decision. Um, There's no pushback. There's no conversation. And um, it's a real weakness, I think, on our part that it takes 73 consecutive five to four partisan decisions that are won for Republican big donor interests. And if you want to expand the story, you can then go into the dark money funded amicus briefs that told the court what to do. I mean, you, that you'd make the frame a little bit bigger around that and the story doesn't get any better. It gets worse. But just that point alone, that there've been this many decisions in which they voted basically like um, a legislative body in which they knew what side they were on and they lined up their votes and they jammed through their outcome and made sure that their guys won. That is a terrible, terrible um, pattern for a court to exhibit. You know, I um, I never thought that I would hear sharper criticism about the Supreme Court than I did after the Bush versus Gore decision, which I think 
was shocking to people in terms of what appeared to be partisan, um, essentially a purely partisan decision, but uh, it, it, it really uh, is started up again in terms of the appearance of partisanship. And, you know, certainly I will- And the pattern of partisanship, my yeah, gosh. It's yeah. not just an appearance, it's an absolute pattern. Well, I, what I would say is, you know, the importance of Americans being able to have faith in the integrity and independence of their judiciary of the judiciary is in many ways more important um, than than the, uh, the that appearance in the Justice Department. They're both very important, and that's been weakened. I I I it is very hard for me to see how we are going to be able to change that and and have that appearance be respected again. Um, that appearance and independence. Here would be one signal that the uh, Republicans on the court would be willing to take it seriously, and that would be that they would fix the rule that requires the identity of who funded amicus briefs when amicus briefs are filed. At the moment, all they require is who actually paid for the publication, the printing of the brief, which is a matter of just several thousand dollars. So a multi-million dollar front group that doesn't disclose its donors um, can file a brief and simply say, well, we paid for the printing of the brief and the court has absolutely no idea who the real party is uh, who is making this argument. It's a group that manufactures nothing, that does, you know, it's a pure front group for other interests. And those other interests don't have to disclose themselves. And the court's in a position simply to change its rules so that all the parties who come and argue before the court and file briefs before the court know who all the other parties actually are. This business of allowing them to show up in masks um, is just incredibly unhealthy. And um, we'll know that the court is sincere about trying to clean up its act when it takes a look at the amicus brief disclosure rule. And what the senator is talking about, uh, uh, amicus briefs are essentially briefs that are not filed by the parties in a particular case that goes to the Supreme Court, but by other groups that come in and they say, here's the, here's our argument, here's what you should consider, court. And often they have very high profile people who are the names on them, who are signing their names to it. And it could be people who have something very uniquely tied to that case. You might have generals who come in and, you know, say on behalf of former generals, this is our view, yeah. but the real group behind that. I did a couple of briefs else. with John McCain. So mm -hmm. everybody came who came in that to that proceeding and read the briefs knew, okay, yeah, this was the brief by Sheldon Whitehouse and by John McCain. Then comes in some group that is purely nominal. You know, it's got a name like the Pacific Legal Foundation or uh, the Competitive Enterprise Institute or um, the, you know, Rhode Islanders for Peace and Puppies and Prosperity. And somebody paid for that brief, but, and somebody wanted to hide who they were when they filed the brief. And they came in behind this front group. And the court has taken just a majestic disinterest in who these people are. And unfortunately, um, a lot of them are, I think, the same groups who are paying for the selection of the judges, paying for the campaigning for the judges, paying for the lawyers who tee up the appropriate cases to try to give the right kind of bait to the court and then tell the court how to rule. There's just way too much dark money through the whole system right now for it to be healthy. 
It's interesting. You know, I think a lot of uh, people who are not part of the system are going to be surprised to hear a lot of our listeners about this practice. I will say that um, lawyers aren't cheap and getting lawyers to draft uh, you know, essentially a brief for the Supreme Court is something that costs you at the least many tens of thousands, usually in the six figures uh, amount of money. Uh, so getting a, a, an attorney to do that, or a group of attorneys to do that costs money and somebody's got to pay for that. Yeah. And sometimes they put out a whole screen of them. There's one right wing foundation that the Janus case was the one that attacked the public employee unions. Mm-hmm. Before there was the Janus case, there was the Friedrichs case, which was going to be the big victory for the anti-union folks, except that Justice Scalia died. So the court was four to four. So they had to postpone until they got Gorsuch. And then they got their five to four decision knocking back the unions. So the Friedrichs case was a pretty important one. And enough time has gone by that researchers have been able to dig out what was going on in that case a little bit better. And it turns out that one right-wing foundation, the Bradley Foundation, funded 11 different briefs, 11 different organizations that filed briefs. So not only can you, if you're a big special interest, get your point of view in and hide that it's you, you can also create an artificial battery of groups that make the court and other parties think, oh my gosh, look at all these different groups that all seem to say the same thing. This must be... You know, it's like a popularity contest. There's so many people who believe this. And it turns out that they're all fronting for the same hidden trust uh, that is representing the right wing interests. It just, it's not healthy. It's interesting because the practice of amicus briefs, the purpose of them is when there's perspectives that are not offered by the the um, parties in question, well, you can have a group that's maybe different than the people who are litigating a suit. Um, what's, uh, you know, what is going on here is where there's a, a small exemption that used to, I think, not be used quite as often is driving a truck through it. In some ways, that's very similar to what we're talking about in the DOJ side. In other words, limited contacts between the White House and the DOJ being expanded greatly. Yeah. Yeah. The amicus problem has exploded. There are more and more of these briefs being filed and more and more of them are being filed by groups who you don't know what they're interested in. If it's the American Medical Association, you know it's doctors. If it's John McCain and Sheldon Whitehouse, you know it's those two. Uh, But when it's these phony front groups, you have absolutely no idea who is the hand inside that, you know, ready glove uh, that it's very willingly lends itself to go into the court on behalf of whoever's paying it. Well, it's going to be, um, this will be a little disheartening to some of our listeners. Are you hoping for the courts, I think, potentially to be a check on the Trump administration? I, I want, for, for, for all of them listening out, out there, and they're going to listen to this podcast, how, what, what should be their hope that there can potentially be some check on practices that appear to, to, to them, I'm sure a lot of them, to be corrupt? Well, I think a lot of these practices are very corrupt, um, certainly by the standards that the founding fathers meant when they talked about corruption. Um, you know, there's a lot of self-dealing. There's a lot of anonymity and hiding who one is. There's a reason robbers wear masks. Um, and, you know, I think the very first thing that you can do is to dig into this stuff and write about it. And as a citizen, 
show your interest and your concern in the problem. I do think that Roberts and his four uh, henchmen um, will push the court as far as they can in a partisan direction to help the big Republican donors that helped get them there up until they feel that the integrity of the court is going to be questioned. So public opinion, I do think, has an effect. And I think the flagrant uh, temperamental instability and partisan rancor that Kavanaugh displayed in the hearing sort of put Justice Roberts back on his heels to think, ooh, we're going to have to cool it for a while until this blows over. And um, so I... I, I do think that public concern and concern from lawyers and concern from law professors and concerns written in legal publications do filter back to the court and will provide a bit of a break on the heavily partisan impulses of the Roberts Five. Well, it's great. We have a lot of listeners who are lawyers and law professors who I hear from who I, I think are going to take that to heart. And I, I can't thank you enough for talking to us about all of these issues. We're, yeah, uh, we have these conver- yeah, we have these conversations often. Thank you. Thank you for all you're doing to, to bring attention to these issues and try to do something about it. Extraordinary work, sir. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. I'm really grateful to you. If you enjoyed this episode, please look in the description and fill out our first ever listener survey. We really want your feedback and you'll get a chance to win an Amazon gift card. Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast, go to your app and review the podcast, and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic. 